The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. The Doctrine Detective, the Professional Reformer. Very often their work is a cloak to cover hidden desires or an effort to build themselves up by tearing others down. They snatch at the least straw of deviation and blow it up to an apostasy. They stir up trouble and start division. Such a man tells people that faithfulness to Christ demands that they join him in criticism, and he condemns his target with continuing and increasing venom. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the weekly radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we will be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled Logs and Splinters. How would you feel if you needed surgery and your doctor wanted to wear a blindfold for your operation? Your surgeon must be able to see clearly if he is going to help you. When we harshly criticize and judge the motives of others, we are demonstrating a spiritual blindness that will only cause hurt and pain. We must have a spirit of love and forgiveness towards others. This can only come by carefully and prayerfully examining our own hearts and motives. The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is Matthew 7 and verses 1 through 5. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled Logs and Splinters. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee that thou hast given us redemption, and we pray that we may not think of it merely in the terms of what we have been saved from, or what we are going to be in heaven, but that we may think of it in terms of what we are to do today, how we are to live today and in the days that are to come. Above all, we ask thee, Lord, that thou wilt give us to look at ourselves as thou dost see us, and that we may not hide in the false ideas that we are so capable of creating about ourselves. Hear our prayer. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. My subject today I'm calling Logs and Splinters from the famed text of the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, First take the beam out of your own eye, or as it is in the modern version, first take the log out of your own eye. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ certainly had a sense of humor. What is a sense of humor? The Oxford Dictionary defines it thus, 
the faculty of perceiving what is ludicrous or of expressing it. The dictionary further states that humor is distinguished from wit as being less purely intellectual and as having a sympathetic quality in virtue of which it often becomes allied to pathos. James Russell Lowell in My Study Windows says, Humor, in its first analysis, is a perception of the incongruous. Now, with such a definition, we can certainly say that the Lord had a sense of humor. A camel in a bowl of soup, pearls before swine, figs from thistles, the blind leading the blind. And above all, this sense of the incongruous gives fire to our text. Christ pictures one man rushing up to another and saying, Oh, you poor thing, you have a splinter in your eye. Let me help you take it out. And everyone sees that the man who offers this help has a log sticking out of his own eye. The full text reads as follows. Why do you see the splinter that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Now, I have adopted the words splinter and log because modern scholarship has established this meaning from the classics and from the papyri. The German scholar Wilhelm Dittenberger has given us the entire account book of a Greek temple in which all purchases were listed together with the prices paid for the materials. Among the items were listed great beams on which the ordinary boards were laid. Our New Testament word dokos is used for these beams. The price paid for them was so great that we know they were large. Now we use the word log rather than beam because the younger generation hearing of someone with a beam in his eye might mistake it for a gleam in the eye. The picture set before us is a humorous one, but akin to pathos because it is such a revelation of a common characteristic of human nature and because it calls forth such a judgment from our Lord. It's so easy to see the faults of our neighbors and so hard to see our own. This text is rarely preached upon, perhaps because it's so probing to the heart of the speaker. In my library, I have shelf after shelf of bound volumes of sermons. There are more than a 100,000 pages in these encyclopedia-sized volumes, and a careful search of the indexes shows only one sermon on this text, preached by the vicar of Wig Hill in Yorkshire in 1892, and of comparatively little use. The words of the text, one might say, are so simple that anyone, even child or a simpleton, can understand them without explanation. And since this is so, it's all the more important to look at them carefully so that their apparent simplicity will not cause us to pass them by. The idea might be reduced to the statement that we're to set our own house in order before trying to take on the house of somebody else. Our text is found in the Sermon on the Mount. And we may begin by asking ourselves why Christ gave these ethical truths. Through all his early years, he had lived a life of simplicity among his neighbors. He saw them through divine eyes, and he saw them through human eyes. He was the God-man. 
Even when some began to follow him, he did not trust himself to them, because he knew all men, and needed no one to bear witness of man, for he himself knew what was in man. And that's a terrible statement, for it means that Christ saw past all outward form and pretense. This is why he could speak as he did. This is why his words carry such acid. But at the same time, he was love. He came to take our humanity, that he might transform it like unto his own, the only perfect humanity. And this is why his words carry such healing balm. Christ knew that people commonly talk about people. Neighbors talk about their neighbors, and almost always such talk has a shade of malice. The Hindu proverb says, the whisperer is a liar, and the snake bite is like a needle when it goes in, and like a plowshare when it comes out. And the Malgash says, scandal is like an egg, when it is hatched it has wings. In Kenya, in Africa, the Kikuyu says, gossiping and lying are brother and sister. Well, what do people commonly talk about? Someone answers, I am interested in people. You are rather nosy. She is a dirty gossip. Or I just tell the truth about people. You make a lot of nasty remarks. He is a backbiting scandalmonger. That's the conjugation of the same act as found in different people, in myself and in others. Well, what do people commonly talk about? I've heard people twit bald men on their baldness, stout people on their fatness, even cripples on their infirmity. And when someone has a reverse of fortune, there are those who are quick to say, he had it coming to him, or she deserved every bit of it, or it served him right. There seems to be in human nature a savage desire to hurt others. This is manifested to the extreme in nicknames that are given to people. Almost 200 years ago, William Hazlitt said, a nickname is the hardest stone that the devil can throw at a man. Walter Savage Lander wrote, nicknames and whippings, when they are once laid on, no one has discovered how to take off. Jesus Christ says that those who follow him are to have no part in this filthy traffic between mouth and ear. For the ear is as much a part of this evil as is the mouth, and it is the heart that connects the two. There is some mathematical logic here that needs to be set forth. A man tells a lie, and another man criticizes him for it. The Lord tells us that the lie is a splinter, and that talking about it is a log. A woman falls into grievous sin and commits adultery. Someone finds it out and begins to talk about it. The Lord calls the adultery a splinter, and talking about it a log. This would seem to be a new form of mathematics, and perhaps there's a good explanation for it. The Lord said that his ways were not our ways, and that his thoughts were not our thoughts. He said that his ways and thoughts were as much above ours as the heavens are above the earth. How logical is his rating of criticism a worse sin than the sins it criticizes? 
Perhaps we could find an analogy in the story of the woman who cast her two mites into the treasury. There were wealthy people there at the same time, giving, giving large sums. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury, for they all contribute out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, her whole living. Certainly Christ was not claiming the two pieces of money each worth less than an eighth of a cent in our currency, was a larger sum than the thousands of shekels being cast into the temple treasury. The answer is that he was not using the mathematics of the adding machine, but the mathematics of the heart. This is more advanced than the study of conic sections or the calculus. We come up with the conclusion that the important thing is the motive that prompts a person. He knew the motive of the woman who gave her all. And the solemn thing is that he knew the motives of those who were guilty of criticism, backbiting, scandal-mongering. Such people always speak from ignorance, for they do not know the motives which prompt people. Some time ago I heard of a certain man who was an elder in a certain church which allowed its contributions to be published. This man's contributions were comparatively small, and there were those who severely criticized him. The critics whispered rather loudly that he should not be on the session because the smallness of his gifts showed a greedy spirit. Since he did not live ostentatiously, his detractors said that he must be storing it up in stocks and bonds. And then he died. When his will was probated, it was discovered that he left practically nothing but it was also discovered that he had been paying more than a hundred dollars a week for many years to support an insane sister in a private asylum. Well, it's certain also that moat seekers are professional reformers. They have given themselves a DD degree, doctrine detective, and they go to church only to discover whether the minister is orthodox. They snatch at the least straw of deviation and blow it up to an apostasy. They stir up trouble and start division. Such a man tells people that faithfulness to Christ demands that they join him in criticism, and he condemns his target with continuing and increasing venom. We are learning certain things about the abysmal recesses of the human spirit that make it possible to understand the professional reformer, the moat finder, the doctrine detective. Very often their work is a cloak to cover hidden desires, a defense mechanism, or an effort to build themselves up by tearing others down. There is an old proverb among the Kashmiri, the dogs bark, but the caravan passes. The critic, the gossip, the backbiter does not realize that his yelping classifies him with the pack and not with the procession. In psychology, this is called a transfer. The man who looks at motes in another can avoid looking at his own logs. It is understandable, then, that the Lord Jesus called such people hypocrites. Why were they attacking others? Does such criticism arise because there is profound grief? over sin? Is the critic moved by the fact that God is outraged 
and that great wrong is done? Actually, the critic has no sensitivity for sin at all. If his accusations of his neighbor are discovered to be false and the neighbor innocent, the critic looks for something else to criticize. Nor is it because of a great love for the neighbor that the critic makes his accusations and carries his tales. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love does not expose sin. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love does not fail. Now, since we see that there are no positive motives for the criticism, and since the Lord says that the critic is a hypocrite, it follows that the critic is moved by envy, jealousy, selfishness, and all other evil motives that put the poison sack of the asp under the human tongue. The critic should also understand that everything he says is a boomerang and ultimately coming back upon himself. Curses are like young chickens. They always come home to roost. Alexander McLaren has well illustrated this. He said, A carping spirit of eager fault-finding necessarily tinges people's feelings toward its possessor, and he cannot complain if the severe tests which he applied to others are used on his own conduct. A cynical critic cannot expect his victim to be profoundly attached to him or ready to be lenient to his failings. If he chooses to fight with a tomahawk, he will be scalped someday, and the bystanders will not lament profusely. But a more righteous tribunal than that of his victims condemns him. For in God's eyes, the man who covers not his neighbor's faults with the mantle of charity has not his own blotted out by divine forgiveness. This spirit is always accompanied by ignorance of one's own faults, which makes him who indulges in it ludicrous. So our Lord would seem to indicate by the figure of the splinter and the log. It takes a great deal of close peering to see a splinter, but the censorious man sees only the log and sees it out of scale. No matter how bright the eye, though it be clear as a hawk's, its beauty is of no moment to him. The splinter magnified, and nothing but the splinter is his object and he calls this one-sided exaggeration criticism and prides himself on the accuracy of his judgment. He makes just the opposite mistake in his esteem of his own faults, if he sees them at all. We look at our neighbor's errors with a microscope and at our own through the wrong end of a telescope. The New Testament everywhere proclaims that the Lord cannot effectively work in us if we do not forgive others. It is therefore imperative that we face this problem and take a sharp and a severe inventory of our state of mind. If we have an enemy, is it our fault? Have we forgiven any and everything that he may have done to us? Have we gone the second mile to overlook incidents that we might have considered slights? Job lost everything material that he had, and then his body was afflicted with boils, and to make it worse, his wife nagged him. On top of it all, his so-called comforters came with hollow arguments and vapid meanderings until God intervened, saying, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? 
And after the divine revelation, Job began to pray for those who had despitefully used him. And then, it was then that the Lord turned his captivity and gave him twice as much as he had before. In the light of all this, it is most important that we consider our conduct, keep our tongues yielded to the Lord, and do everything that we possibly can for the good of those whom we think have done us evil. We must begin by applying all this to our own selves. We must follow the conduct of the disciples in the upper room. When the Lord announced that one of them would betray him, they did not let their curiosity take over. Not one of them asked, Lord, is it Peter? Lord, is it Andrew? Lord, is it Thomas or James? Rather, each asked the profound, soul-searching question, Lord, is it I? The disciples were in the presence of that all-holy light, the Lord Jesus Christ. There was no place in that upper room for any curiosity, which would be at the same time a declaration of innocence. In every heart there was the certain awareness of the possibility of guilt. Unhappy the Christian who does not know the nature of his nature. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And when we realize that we are capable of these deep hypocritical sins, we can come to the Lord and ask him to cleanse us and to give us the positive asset that will make it impossible to go about picking splinters from the eyes of others. And that positive asset is an ever-growing love for himself. If we love him, we shall be occupied with him. A man who truly loves his wife is not going to spend his time examining the flaws in another woman's face. A man who truly loves the Lord Jesus Christ is not going to be concerned about the actions of others. We expect nothing from unbelievers. We expect everything from Christ, and we are delighted when we see him at work in fellow believers. See how Paul burst into praise at news of another group of believers. We read in Ephesians 1, Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I thank my God, he says to the Philippians, in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, thankful for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Oh, when the heart is filled with love for the Lord, there will be growing love for all who belong to him. When we begin to love our neighbor as we love ourselves and as we love our Lord, our tongues will be employed in prayer for them and in delight that the Lord is working in their lives and we glorify him for what he is doing. Then he looks at us and says, with the same measure that you measure to others, I will measure out to you. And suddenly we discover that our cup is running over. When the lumbermen began their great logging operations in the north and west of our continent, they soon learned that the logs had to be floated down the streams to the mills that were built nearer the centers of civilization, where their lumber could be used. During the spring floods, they filled the streams with great timbers, and occasionally there was a log jam. The most expert of the rollers took over, 
and leaping nimbly from log to log, they broke the jam and started the whole cut running down the stream. If you discover that there is a log jam in your own eye, remember that the Lord counseled the church of Laodicea to secure from him salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. The salve of his love will take the beam out of your eye. Then you will see him, and all others will become the objects of your love in him. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and you'll discover that your tongue has stopped criticizing and gossiping, and that you're thinking of him and loving others in him. And our God and Father, we pray thee for the whole church of Jesus Christ, that we may know more of this love, to know each other in Christ, to love thee better, and each other more in him. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Do you struggle with having a critical spirit towards others? Do you judge the motives of others without first examining your own heart? Only Jesus can create in us a tender heart towards others and a loving spirit that can heal damaged relationships. If you would like to review today's message and additional teachings by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, you can hear these broadcasts anytime, anywhere around the globe via the Internet. The Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible Real Audio Internet website is accessible by visiting Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals online at www.alliancenet.org. Log on to this week's message entitled Logs and Splinters. An audio copy of today's teaching is also available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled Logs and Splinters or simply request message number Q119. We would also like to make available to you a complimentary copy of Dr. Barnhouse's booklet entitled First Things First. This six-chapter booklet is a study on Christian priorities. If we are to live a successful Christian life, then what are the most important concepts and priorities we need to grasp concerning God, His Word, the Lordship of Christ, witnessing fellowship and repentance? This booklet can easily be read in a short amount of time, but its teachings and applications will last a lifetime. Ask for your complimentary copy of First Things First, when you call or write. When you call or write, you may also request a free catalog of all of Dr. Barnhouse's booklets and audio teachings. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is the radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview drawing upon the insight and wisdom of reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by we seek to provide contemporary christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place if you would like more information on the alliance of confessing evangelicals or if you would like to support and further our work contact us by writing alliance of confessing evangelicals Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103, or call toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Then join us again next time 
for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.